This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Okay, for those tuning in this week for Race to Value, expect to learn something new from an expert in health policy, business strategy, and value-based care transformation. This week, we have David Smith on the show. And what can I say about David? I mean, I first met him when I sat next to him in a business meeting in Chicago, and I remember thinking, this is one of the brightest minds in healthcare. And then you couple that with the passion. I mean, David Smith is someone that truly leads with the servant's heart, and he is here in this world to make a difference in the business of healthcare is his calling. And David, in our conversation today, Daniel, he was so passionate about improving the lives of those in marginalized communities and how we how do we leverage technology to improve how we organize and access care and reform our Byzantine health system so we can create a rising tide of economic prosperity. I mean, I think this was one of our best episodes that we've had. I mean, truly, a, you know, just an amazing leader in our industry. Eric, I feel the same way and you've captured it well. You know, David is really a somewhat of a renaissance man in healthcare. His expertise, as you'll find listeners, lies in areas of managed care, alternative payment models, public health. He's really leading change all over the place. He's established several coalitions focused on these efforts, most notably in areas of opioid use, disorder recovery, individual market stabilization, and consumer engagement platforms. He's a senior advisor at Avia and serves as a project executive for their Medicaid transformation project. And he's the CEO and founder of Third Horizon Strategies, an organization that supports companies with strategic planning so they can respond to policy and market environmental conditions. I've known David for some time now. He and I both work together at Levitt Partners, and I can tell you he is the real deal. All right. So let's go ahead and get this interview started with David Smith as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. David, we're so excited to have you on the show this week. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, 
I'm excited to participate. The sun is shining and the grass is green and we're going to talk about healthcare and no better way to spend an hour. Well, I hope you have your running shoes on too, David, because we're about to have this race to value with you today. I was just thinking, since you are the foremost expert on Medicaid transformation, we'd like to discuss the very important work that you're doing with Avia's Medicaid Transformation Project. And also as a CEO and founder of Third Horizon Strategies, we'd love to hear about your work in policy and market intelligence, collaborative problem solving and strategic planning. So why don't we go ahead and get this party started? Perfect. Well, I thought a great place for us to begin, David, would be to discuss the dire situation we are facing with the Medicaid program that takes care of our nation's most vulnerable citizens. For our listeners out there, I'll go ahead and set the frame for why transformation of this program is such an essential endeavor. We currently have 75 million Americans covered by Medicaid, so that's about one in five Americans. 50% of U.S. births are financed by Medicaid. Among all payers for behavioral health services, Medicaid is number one in spend. Overall, we spend over $600 billion annually on the Medicaid program, and that equates to about 15% of all healthcare. And that's not even the totality of the problem. Medicaid rolls continue to surge. We have unsustainable growth trajectory that's been exacerbated by COVID-19. And given that Medicaid enrollment and the strength of our economy are counter-cyclical, some forecasts have even projected that Medicaid beneficiaries may even approach 100 million people in the next five years. If we experience a persistent economic downturn with ever-widening economic inequality in the post-COVID era, I mean, we're going to have some major challenges here. So I just, I just think, David, if there was ever a race to value in healthcare, this would be it, and you are leading that charge. So I wanted to talk about the Medicaid Transformation Project and your role as a senior advisor with Avia, which is a network for health systems that is in search of innovative solutions. And you've teamed up with Andy Slavitt and 30 major health systems on this project. And the MTP, the Medicaid Transformation Project, it's comprised of all these different health systems like Advocate Aurora Health and Baylor Scott & White, Dignity Health, Geisinger, Providence St. Joseph, and you have one big, hairy, audacious goal to transform healthcare into lives of nearly 75 million Americans who rely on Medicaid and other vulnerable populations that that program serves. And since it was formed in the summer of 2018, the MTP has completed its first project phase, which was focused on building a foundation for health system action. And you're now entering phase two which will expand the project's e ecosystem and welcome payers and community health systems and other local and regional partners. So David, can you provide our listeners with a high level overview of the Medicaid transformation project and how it will bring about scalable solutions to reorganize and ultimately reshape our country's healthcare to improve health in, the, in our most vulnerable communities? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a big question, so I'll I'll try and be as succinct as I can. I will say on the front end, uh, kind and generous of you to call me uh, the foremost expert. It, it's, it's probably unfounded praise. There are, um, as you know, there are amazing men and women who have been at this transformation thing for decades. Public servants, market leaders that have dedicated their careers to Medicaid and to the underserved, and you will never meet a greater group of people on this planet than those who, who labor uh, in those ways in, in this area. 
Well, maybe just start by making what might be a provocative statement to some of your listeners, but it's one that I think underlies our work and, and certainly underlies my own philosophy. And that's that I, I think the Medicaid program is is probably the single most important program or endeavor in this country, period. And I, I, that is not limited to healthcare. I am talking in total. And the reason I say that, and I think 2020 has shown this incredible light on this, that fundamentally economic development, economic growth, economic opportunity depends on a lot of things, but it depends most critically on a person's health. And health, as we know, is, is not just the subject of a person's physical health. A person's health is a function of social environment and conditions and um, mental well-being and physical health. And a person fundamentally can't work, can't train, maybe str will struggle with childcare. P people cannot function at their full human capacity if they are not healthy. And so if you take that juxtaposition, you start to think about underserved communities, com communities that are disadvantaged socioeconomically, and where you see a greater concentration of quote-unquote Medicaid, then that program, which is designed to provide access to services to improve health, becomes important. Well, then you say, well, how well does that program do? Well, the, the truth is, is that it's mixed. The fact that we have a program there is, is positive. It's a vestige of LBJ's efforts and then the Medicare era. But over the last few decades, um, this is not a program that has been generally thought of as, as kind of a core area of reform. We, we spend a lot of time talking about Medicare and about commercial-sponsored insurance, but individuals that are covered by Medicaid typically don't advocate for themselves politically in quite the same way we might see with other electorate groups. We certainly do not fund the program anywhere near how we fund other programs, and yet we have this expectation that the program should be sufficient to drive a person's health in a way that might lead to economic development. So when I say it's the most important program in this country, getting Medicaid right improves health, improving health improves economic development. And if 2020 taught us anything, it's that those disparities we see in communities from a public health perspective or disparities we see in communities from a racial perspective or other forms of equity, those exacerbations are uh, dilutive and they're toxic to the way we can prosper socially and economically. So three or four years ago, this concept was kind of born out of, a, of an idea that said, okay, well, let's, let's underscore the importance of this, as I just did. And Let's recognize that we maybe have not historically spent a lot of money, and we're not going to change the notion that we've got you know, 56 some odd versions of the program that run around the country because it's administered by states. But let's deal with a few things that seem to be converging at the same time. This, this is kind of exciting. So in, in my mind, there are six really important things all happening at once. One is the evolution of payment models and something you guys are obviously steeped very deeply in. We've seen more of that in Medicare and commercial, not a lot in Medicaid, but the punchline is we are starting to get the joke that until we align incentives from payer to provider, provider to doc, doc to others and others to patients, we are not going to maximize the efficiency of our system. Factor two is care model science. God, we are good at care models um, in this country. We're good at inventing them. 
We're good at testing them. We're good at proving when and, and where they, they work and, and they don't work. And we're dang good at publishing them. Any periodical you look at at any given week or month, you'll see more and more mounting evidence around community paramedicine or community health workers or contingency management. You pick whatever one of 50 care models and, and you see just a strengthening of the case. Number three is we have some really creative people in our country from the designers and innovators at places like Google and Amazon to people that hang out in an incubator or, or create stuff in their garage. We have thoughtful people that have started to turn their attention to the underserved, food insecurity, housing insecurity, access to mental health resources. And that's buttressed by number four, just a deluge of capital that has uh, that has poured into to fuel that innovation in a way that we have so many point solutions in the market now that it's it's borderline disorienting number five if you were sitting inside the health care system for the last three years you would have thought that social determinants of health was a was something we just creatively came up with but in point of fact it is a it is a century old expression but you can't go anywhere in our industry right now without somebody talking about social determinants of health. And a cynic could roll their eyes about that and it just being the latest intellectual candy. Uh, but an optimist would say, oh my God, we're finally recognizing the importance of these other factors that drive health. And the sixth and most important factor is exactly how you let off the conversation with, this is not a shrinking problem. We are anticipated to have 100 million Medicaid beneficiaries in this country within a few years. I think about that. Like that that's a little less than one in four people in this country that are covered by a program that will ultimately dictate how they get access to resources that will improve their health. And again, if you believe health is linked to economic productivity, that is like that is so seminal. So our approach with the project was to not try to boil the ocean. We kind of led with a couple of, of assumptions. Assumption one, federal government's not going to do anything big and bold for a few years. And that can almost always be a truism. Assumption two, states aren't going to move quickly and Medicaid reforms. Again, pretty typical truism. Number three, managed care companies are not racing in Medicaid to create alternative payment models. Another truism, although I think that's starting to shift. And so we went to the 30 health system partners in this first phase, and we said, all right, let's hold the rest of the environment constant. We know funding could be better. Regulations could be lighter. Like We get all of that, but those are big problems. Let's focus on what we can do today in our communities with these six factors that are coming together. And the punchline of the project was, was essentially not leading with tech, but it was saying, well, let's look at the incredible evidence base of care models we have. What have you done? What have you not done? If you've done something, what worked, what didn't work? Are you still doing it? Was it financially sustainable? And as you'd imagine, in many cases for, this, for these communities, uh, the answers were no, 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 across the board, ultimately leading to these are not programs that can be financially sustained in a fee-for-service environment. And we said, well, in, in, instead of hyper-focusing on APMs right away, let's do this. Let's look at the care models, what works well, what doesn't, and where are there areas or barriers to financial self-sustainability that technology or, or other kinds of solutions can disrupt? And that's what we did for two years. We looked at 
uh, emergency department mental health moms and babies and substance use disorders sequentially. I broke each of those into subcomponents, left the rest of the world fixed, vetted over 500 technology businesses, and I had about 150 instances where our 30 partners did something that we thought was unique and still have a long way to go. But that's essentially the backdrop for how the program came into existence and uh, the, the philosophy we used to execute it. David, thank you so much for that overview. I, I love hearing your description of it and so many great things that we're going to dig into a little bit deeper in the conversation. I want the next question to focus on one of the last things you said, which is substance use disorder. Your work with the Medicaid Transformation Project is so important. And one of the campaigns in that transformation project is substance use disorder. As you mentioned, I know it's an issue that's deeply personal for you. But let's take a high-level overview look at what nationally is happening with substance use disorder first. And nationally across the U.S., 23.4 million Americans are suffering from substance use disorder. According to CDC data released in December, over 81,000 drug overdose deaths occurred in the U.S. between May 2019 and May 2020, but which is the highest number of overdose deaths ever recorded in a 12-month period. And two-thirds of those deaths are related to opioids. David, this is so tragic. The phase one MTP report does a great job of outlining many of the key challenges of substance use disorder within the Medicaid program. I'd like to cite a couple of these stats because they're quite concerning. As many as one in five Medicaid beneficiaries experiences substance use disorder and or a mental health condition, and this accounts for 46% of the total Medicaid spending on healthcare services. Only 10% of people in the Medicaid program who need treatment for substance use disorder actually receive it, leaving over 18 million Americans in the current addiction treatment gap. On a personal level, as I mentioned, this is, is deeply personal to you. I know you, you've been impacted by this. Your dad, brother, and sister have all lost their lives to it. Would you be open to sharing your personal story and how it's shaped your perspective on the opioid epidemic? And given that your work is so closely tied to an issue that has caused you deep personal emotional pain and suffering, how does that drive you as a leader? And with regard to the Medicaid Transformation Project, what are some of the health system opportunities that have been identified to more effectively manage this crisis? And how are MTP members leading the way? Yeah, well, thank you for the question. I'll try to articulate from the, the personal to the, the, the professional and business as, as seamlessly as I can. The short story, this all, all kind of started with uh, my father as a, a younger teenager, he was probably 12 or 13. He was diagnosed with a disease called chronic fatigue syndrome, a, an illness that we, we didn't know a lot about then and, and we still don't really know a lot about now. But it's, it's basically tantamount to like living with mono every day of your life. I'm constantly fatigued. If, if you catch a flu, you know, the symptoms are, are four or five times worse than they might be. And you know, for somebody with a well-functioning immune system and the, the diagnosis of that illness came at a really inopportune time in that we were handing out Oxycontin like it was uh, candy and, and Lortab and, and other you know, strong painkillers that required a prescription. And like so many others today and, and over the last few years, he developed a, a dependency and oscillated in and out of that for uh, some period of time and, and ultimately took it too far uh, one day and overdosed. He 
he was sitting at his computer working on his family budget. Um, he had recently separated from his, his wife, who, who was my stepmother, and my younger brother found him because nobody had heard from him for about 24 hours. The, the impact of that on my younger brother was profound, as you can imagine. I, I can't imagine some of the twists and turns my life would have taken had I been the one to, to discover my father in that condition. And Joseph developed uh, the, the early stages of fibromyalgia and was diagnosed and prescribed with OxyContin. And the mental distress he was carrying around combined with physical condition led him down a quick path. And, and he overdosed a few months into his diagnosis and his girlfriend, fiance, found him when he didn't show up for work. And they worked together at a call center. And then, then my sister, Anna, sometimes even the harder one to talk about, developed kind of an innocent dependency. She uh, she was diagnosed with rickets at a young age. So rickets is a disease that insufficient sunlight or vitamin D will constrain your, your physical growth. So it's, it's a really painful disease to live with. And so you can imagine she was being prescribed for things after surgeries and the like. And she was visiting with my mother and, and stepfather one day and had overdosed and passed out, had her head on the table, seemed to be okay. And a week later had a brain aneurysm and was declared brain dead. And, and we had to make the difficult decision as a, as a family to pull the plug. And so that's linked back to that overdose. So as you said, I've lived it. And it, it's an incredibly difficult thing to go through. I have three children now that will never know a, a wonderful aunt or uncle or grandfather because of, of what happened. When I talk about this, I'm often asked about my indignation at, at Purdue and McKesson and, and others that have been implicated as co-conspiratorial in, in our opioid problem. And they all bear blame, and, and that'll be litigated in the court. But I always fundamentally come back to one premise, and that's a, a addiction is the most maybe common human failing, human defect we have. Opioids, chocolate, television, anger. There are all different kinds of things that patterns of behavior that we become attached to and, and that, that release dopamine. And dopamine is the ultimate drug for all of us. You know, opioids and, and other synthetics are a, a, a chemical representation of the same human thing we all go through. And so, as you know, for decades, we've had this stigma around addiction. And it has been to our collective detriment because a person who is struggling with a disorder is not a bad person. It's not a bad person that made a mistake. It's not somebody that needs to pull themselves up by the bootstrap. They are sick. They are ill. They are chronically ill. And we have ignored that as a society for, for like all of human history. And only in the last few years have we started to practice a modicum of empathy and realize that, that these, are, these are not bad people. Well, we have a, a system of care that is, is kind of set up to treat them like they're bad people. There's a lot of historical connotations to this I, I won't get into, but, but a number of years ago, we, we made a decision and have reinforced it through policy for decades to separate a person's mental health and, and, and so behavioral health will include substance use disorder from their physical health. And the, the representation that used to be, we would just throw people in a facility, but, but now we, we separate it in other artificial ways. And what that's created is, is problematic on two big fronts. One is we have very little integration with the way we pay for care and provide care 
between the physical and the mental. And that's just a, a problem full stop because those are not mutually exclusive in any way. And the second is like, if we think our fee-for-service system is bad for physical health, like, it is a dumpster fire for people that struggle with addiction. We do a lot of alternative payment model work in this space, and I'll just share a couple numbers. We just did an exercise for a client where we projected the total cost uh, of claims for a payer on average for a person with a high acuity substance use disorder, somebody that might require a medical stabilization or detox, that those annual claims costs can be north of $31,000, per patient per year. A comprehensive end-to-end seamless facility Intensive outpatient, technology wrapped, regular outpatient interaction, engagement with the community, like the cost to underwrite that whole evidence-based spectrum of care is not more than 13000 bucks. And so we, to our detriment, pay claims to anybody that will submit a claim for anything they can submit a claim for. We pay for urine tests. We, we pay for different clinical settings and extended days in a, in a high-cost inpatient facility. And then when that patient is discharged from whatever part of the spectrum they're in, I saw this with my dad, they are discharged into the ether. You watch commercials for recovery center, recovery residential centers. And they will quote recover, they will quote cure rates. People that have left that have been cured of their substance use disorder. There is no cure for a substance use disorder. There is reducing a person's risk to a baseline. But the fallacy of recovery being a binary event is the biggest culprit here. And we monetize, we capitalize the system to function that way. So the work you guys do and and value becomes so critical. Let's use the numbers I just used. There is a $17,000 value gap. Well, fine, control for risk corridors and reinsurance through high cost claimants, like let's be generous. There's still a $10,000 plus amount of waste and inefficiency for this one disorder. And then on top of that, we get really crappy outcomes because we haven't organized the system to provide for long-term recovery. We think about recovery in short-term stints instead of being as a chronic disease. So if there was anywhere in healthcare, particularly on the non-physical side where, where I thought there is the clearest business case to wholesale delivery reform through payment reform, you know, it's this area. David, thanks so much for sharing a personal story. I know that it's difficult to remember and think through, but it's it's so powerful to me and to our listeners. Uh, I want to follow up by asking you more about the value-based component of this. Can you just give us an update on how that's going and is Congress receptive and maybe tell us a little bit more about that reform alliance? Yeah, absolutely. We've definitely been active with Congress. We've been active with the White House and CMS and SAMHSA and and others over the last couple of years. But I I would say that we we took a bit of a different approach with this. The quicker backstory on this is um, I have a partner named Greg Williams. He's a person in long-term recovery, a a filmmaker, and just all around amazing human being. 
And we met a few years ago. He was running a nonprofit called Facing Addiction. And I started doing a little pro bono work for them. And, and we instantly started thinking through, you know, basically the same premise I just shared. Payment reform will yield, delivery reform will yield, you know, better long-term care and, and recovery rates. So we said, well, there's all this APM stuff going on in the environment. Not a lot's happening in behavioral health here, and certainly not in this area. Like maybe, maybe there's a way to define this as a chronic disease and and build something that would support it. We had like we had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> Still don't every day. <laughs> so we invited a bunch of folks to DC and you know health insurance plans, big hospital systems, addiction experts, tech solutions, and and we sat them around the table and we asked that we asked that question: Is is this? Are we at a moment where we we can actually be thoughtful about this? And and we got a resounding response, and that let us kind of organize an alliance that spent about a year putting together uh, a model. And one of the features of, of what we wanted to, to do with this model was to say, well, let's not wait on the wheels of government. Like there is a business case to make for a managed care company, for an insurance company, for an addiction recovery business that is, that's really good and, and has a, a wide part of the spectrum of, of services for long-term recovery. Like the market is motivated to do this. We just have to find the parts of the market that are willing to put their money where their mouth is and, and be okay with making some mistakes as we figure this out. So we wrote this all up in a paper, kind of patted ourselves on the back and thought, you know, we've done, we've done our part to contribute to the thought leadership of the community. And, and then the phone started to ring and, you know, payers were calling and saying, oh my gosh, this is like, we, we, <laughs> our claims are out of control here. We would love to talk more about this. And so through the, the work of the Alliance, it's let us down. I think we are active right now in, in six or seven markets with commercial, not government, commercial insurance businesses, uh, commercial recovery businesses, navigating the, the construct of contracts that will allow them to do this and, and then studying the effects of that. We also were just beyond humbled. We were selected as a, as a support to the state of Washington. You know, Washington is like gold standard in, in progressive Medicaid reforms, and they have us helping them uh, design a proposal to CMS uh, to implement an APM for substance use disorders statewide. So we have some incredible partners in that work and then have continued to to beat that drum with government. I think as the administration turns and there there might be a, a different investment or focus on places like SAMHSA, NIDA, you know, other federal agencies that think about uh, these issues, we think there is tremendous opportunity. But the last thing I just want to say here is you know, on the other side of this coin, we're going to continue to see the fallout from all of these pharmacy civil cases that are just going to drop billions of dollars into communities for remediation, communities that have been ravaged by the effects of opioids. And, and that is a finite amount of money. It is going to come and it's going to go. And it represents an incredible opportunity to focus capital not on building more beds or more facilities or more MAT clinics, but to underwrite the resources needed to support a patient's journey through that care continuum. Think about this like the chronic disease that it is. We have everything we need to do this right. If we make those investments and we can cater to the economic self-interest of the companies involved, we can turn this industry on its head. And that's cool in and of itself. Better yet, 
something like that could have been helpful or useful to my dad, my brother, my sister. This is the kind of stuff that saving money and driving economic efficiency is all well and good. The human cost of this epidemic in this country is unfathomable. And if you haven't lived through it yet, you will. Through a friend or family member, coworker, it's pervasive. And solving it is within our grasp. We got to do it. Well, David, I'm thinking about the immense challenges of behavioral health care and addiction support services. And despite the crisis at hand, I'm at least encouraged by the opportunity to build a digital foundation to more readily enable the changes needed to better serve patients. And you just mentioned that in terms of focusing capital to really underwrite the journey through the care continuum. And we're seeing that now with advanced technologies such as data-driven assessments and analytics and telehealth, which has become increasingly more important in delivering behavioral health care and addiction support services at scale, which is really required to meet the nation's needs right now to get through this crisis. And as for patients with chronic conditions, uh, telehealth is also being leveraged to provide enhanced capability to monitor symptom progression, adjust medications, modify treatment plans without patients even having to return to the office. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen that truly telehealth has been a game changer. And it seems like these use cases are just barely scratching the surface when it comes to realizing the full potential of digital transformation in healthcare. And you have innovations also in play like AI and remote monitoring and dozens of other applications that have highly specified functions that can improve care for patients. So it seems like there's never really been a better time to reform healthcare from a tech enablement perspective. So I wanted to ask you, as you see these two worlds of healthcare and technology innovation merge, how do you see us being able to transform our fragmented, expensive, and equitable healthcare system? Do you envision perhaps opportunities for health systems to forge creative partnerships with tech companies and the capital investment community to usher in maybe this new era of digital health transformation and care delivery innovation that can really improve care for the underserved populations? Well, I definitely do. It's funny, I've, I've never shared this before, so I'm, I'm hoping the I'm hoping the corollary lands. There's a line in the Sopranos episode where, where Tony Soprano is sitting down across the table from someone and they're talking about where to put the excess money they developed through their nefarious activities. And the guy says to Tony, well, you should buy land because God ain't making any more of it. And I think about that because we have in, the, in this country, particularly for the underserved, we have kind of a fixed and finite amount of infrastructure that will allow us to do our work. And this is particularly true in behavioral health. We don't have a deluge of therapists and counselors or mental health facilities, those resources that have an evidence base. If we could wave a wand and, and we could just hire another thousand mental health professionals or build another 50 facilities, it's all well and good, but this is this is the game we always play in healthcare, right? Like we need more money, we need more money. But we spend four trillion dollars. Like, can we not do better with four trillion dollars? Admittedly, institutions that serve and focus on these areas get much less than that proportionally. And so this this notion of being able to just bulk up infrastructure is a fantasy. That's a five, ten, fifteen year play. It's like land in a way that it's more of a fixed asset than it is something that can change over time. 
what digital resources are capable of doing is unique. And it, we've never really had this before. Like even five, 10 years ago, we couldn't do what we can do today. You just rattled off a bunch of use cases, but the ability to extend scarce, finite infrastructure so we can create better coordination, better access, better care, those resources are there. The, the challenge we have is that it is a noisy, noisy market. And we have this weird thing in our industry where for a decade or two, we've looked at digital and, and tried to view it as, a, as some kind of a panacea. As we have led with digital. And so now when I say the word digital to any group of executives, I'll, half of them will roll their eyes and the other half will pick up their phones and start looking through it because we, we've just abused this, this word. There is a need in our industry to look harder at infrastructure, at workflows, at gaps, and then ask the question, how can I close that gap? How can I eke out another 10 RVUs or, or another whatever relative unit is of efficiency in the particular area that I'm focused on? And the unique thing is that digital telemedicine, like we're not talking about synchronous visits, like that's old hat, we've been doing that for a long time, we're going to do more and more of it as, as we did in 2020. But the, the ability to integrate data, to have a, a trained artificial intelligence algorithm learn from those data and make predictions regarding those data and then interface with the patient to help tell him or her where to go or trigger the doctor to call the patient to support a very specific kind of need to managing capacity in the way we see with ride sharing apps across a community of resources. We have been mired in HIT thinking that our ability to capture clinical information through a terminal linked to an EMR is like, that's the big progression. The EMR should be a commodity product. That is literally just capturing data. What we are able to do now far exceeds that. What we have to learn how to do is to get far better at looking at those resources as tools, as an asset class, as tools in the toolbox and knowing which tool I need to hire to do which job to either extend infrastructure for the underserved or create more efficiency for other communities where we're, we're overcapitalized and we're overleveraged. I'll say one last thing on this and, and then I'll, I'll pause. Like so many other things, 2020 not only shone a light on, on all of these challenges, but one of your colleagues and I had the, the mutual benefit of working for Mike Levitt, who was the Secretary of Health and Human Services for President Bush. And I talked to him about this time last year and said, what do you think of everything that's going on? And he said, look, in my time in government, we, we prepared pandemic response and we learned, and I learned through that period, studying the history of pandemics, that pandemics happen every two, three, four years, but they're not like COVID-19. We only see COVID-19, Spanish flu, like these are these are once in a century kinds of things. When they happen, you see this societal inflection point before and after everything changes. Politics change, structure of the economy changes, and our social compact changes. And our social compact in 2020, like we watched that play out in real time, streaming Wonder Woman 84 from my couch, living off of DoorDash or Uber Eats, and interacting with my family's healthcare practitioners through digital people that had swore they would never do a televisit. 
will never like want me in their office again. And so that doesn't mean we're going from all in-person to all virtual. I'm not trying to overstate this, but the social construct for both practitioners and patients that had maybe been an impediment combined with this very real need to extend infrastructure and the incredible breadth of assets we have, well, it makes 2021 and beyond kind of exciting to think about because I think we're moving some of those immovable objects out of the way and might allow us to start to progress at a faster pace. Well, David, I'm thinking about this accelerated pace to which we're going to transition the industry, but there's this persistent issue that we have to face within our industry, and that's racial disparities in care and institutional racism. And I am very interested in you know some of the work and the research that you're doing. And, and we've covered a lot of different things today that you're working on, like the Medicaid transformation project at Avia, and then your own company, Third Horizon Strategies, and the, the work that you're doing with the Alliance for Addiction Payment Reform, which is a strategic initiative within Third Horizon. But there's another important strategic initiative that you founded called the Healthcare Council of Chicago, or HC3. And this action-oriented collaborative is bringing about leaders throughout the entire healthcare system in Chicago to address these really important health-related issues. And I know racial disparities in care is an important issue to deal with within the, the current state of Chicago. And I thought maybe I would reference a couple of data points for our listeners. You know, between 2012 and 2017, life expectancy fell for everyone in Chicago except for non-Hispanic white Chicagoans. And Hispanic Chicagoans experienced an unparalleled decrease of more than three years in life expectancy. And the impact of racism on population health is illustrated by various epidemiologic indicators that HC3 has studied. For example, there's a nine-year gap in life expectancy between non-Hispanic Black Chicagoans and their non-Hispanic white counterparts. And this translates to more than 3,500 excess deaths for Black people in Chicago every year, with more than half of this burden catalyzed by premature mortality from chronic disease. And there are worrying signs that this dire situation is getting worse. And there's similar signals that are emerging from other sensitive population health indicators, including infant mortality and low birth weight. And Chicago is one of the few large cities across the U.S. with a widening gap in all-cause mortality between Black and white residents across the last 10 years. And if those grim statistics weren't enough, a substantial amount of data is showing that COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted communities of color. And calling systemic racism a public health crisis, I know dozens of Chicago healthcare organizations have pledged to overcome health disparities in minority communities and ensure greater health equity across the city. Can you speak to some of the work that you're doing in this area to address this dire situation of racial disparities in the Chicago area? Yeah, absolutely. Share just a kind of a, a personal moment of salience in the form of a story. Two or three years ago, I have an office uh, downtown Chicago, and then my family lives in a in a western suburb of Chicago, basically the last suburb in Cook County. For any listeners that are familiar with the city, and I was I was driving home. Google was taking me through some really strange route to get home, trying to dodge traffic on 294, and I found myself kind of driving through a neighborhood in Inglewood, which is a, a West Side neighborhood in the city of Chicago. And Inglewood is one of those neighborhoods where when you see shows like Fish High and, and 
you hear people say things like Chirac and they're emphasizing the violence of the city, the, the murder rate. That's a neighborhood where uh, where it's, it's really pronounced. And I, I remember pulling up onto a stop sign and, and looking out and I saw a young black girl that was about the age of my, my oldest daughter at the time. She was playing in her front yard and her mother or grandmother was kind of watching from the doorstep. And every couple of seconds, she'd kind of look left, look right, look back at her daughter, look left, look right, look back at her daughter. Daughter's totally oblivious to what's going on. Just a happy kid, right? Just wanting to play outside because it's, it's a nice summer day. And it hit me really hard in that moment. And I, and I know the epi- epidemiological data. It was five miles from my home. So the space of five miles, I'm going to go from there to my, my own daughter. And here's how those two girls are going to grow up statistically. My daughter is going to get a college education, and this young woman is more likely to not. Uh, my daughter is likely to make a six-figure income, and this young person will will maybe make you know $37,000, and, and that's after holding down a couple of jobs. The young black girl is five times, five times more likely to die giving childbirth than my daughter is. And my daughter will live 16 years longer. Same little girl, same grass, same nice summer day, five miles difference. Uh, So that's that's an incredible thing to think about and really kind of profound, I think. We have heard the term, I think, a lot, systemic racism. And it's become a very politically charged term because there have always kind of been two camps, I think, in our country up until 2020. There's been kind of the camp that, that continues to express that we have a problem with racism in America that needs to be rooted out. And then we have a majority camp that has come to believe that we live in a post-racial society. And I'll admit, I was in the latter camp for a lot of my life. I'm not racist. I don't know racist people. So, like, what's the problem? And I had a different cognizance of this uh, a few years ago through my own journey. But in 2020, I think there was a different experience because in the aftermath of, of the George Floyd killing and some of the other events we saw there was a different voice given to this 400-year grievance. It stated, that's fine that you're not racist, but that's not enough. You have to be actively anti-racist. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means an awareness and cognizance and being objectively and intellectually interested in the notion that we still live in a world, in a society, 400 years in the making that was built on racism. Civil rights movement was not that long ago. And and even since then, racism has not disappeared from institutions in this country. When we say systemic racism, we don't mean that systems themselves are inherently racist or that all the individuals running systems are nefarious, sinister beings who have racially charged motives. We mean we still live in a in a market system and a government system that have incredibly strong institutional vestiges of racism. One just quick example, and we used to live in Salt Lake City, Utah, before we came to Chicago. We, we moved in the middle of Chicago and had a couple of kids and said, well, we got to go to the suburbs. So we're two years in the suburbs, and somebody says to me one day, hey, are you ever going to move back to Salt Lake City? And I said, oh, my gosh, no way. Like, we love Salt Lake, beautiful place. 
oh, but it's just, it's so homogenous. You know, there's no diversity. And you know, I just, I want my kids to grow up in an environment where they're exposed to all these other things and, and ethnicities, cultures, and, and beliefs. And they said, oh, that's, you know, that's, that's great. Where do you live? And I said, Western Springs. Well, Western Springs is like the Salt Lake City of the Chicagoland area. Like everybody looks just like us. And it hit me like a ton of bricks that I had unwittingly participated in a system that had already pre-segregated our communities where 95% of the people in my neighborhood are white and they all look like my family looks. Now, that's a, that's a modest example. And of course, I didn't have a mal motive in my heart at all. But it is the notion that I participated in a system that is a vestige of other systems in history that created that. Well, how do we change that? That is a multi-decade question. Martin Luther King said uh, in an interview a year or two before he died, this just surfaced a few years ago, I think it was with a CBS correspondent. And he made the notion of the African-American community, how can you pull yourselves up by your bootstraps? I'm paraphrasing and probably butchered the question. But the response from Dr. King was so powerful. And I'm paraphrasing again, but he essentially made the point how do you pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you haven't been given a pair of boots? And we have failed for almost all of this country's history to have the level of empathy and focus and thoughtfulness to be sufficiently anti-racist and to look at our institutions in a comprehensive and holistic way and challenge our basic notions of what's right and what's wrong. That all sounds very fluffy, but the most tactical thing a person can do with that, I do it with my team, we do it with pro bono work in the community, is to lift where you stand and challenge yourself. That doesn't mean you need to move out of your neighborhood. It doesn't mean you should switch jobs, but there is a hell of a lot every single one of us can do in our civic lives, in our professional lives, in our health system. It is giving more credence to the kinds of tools, resources, and being driven by a level of empathy that lets us challenge how we've engaged this community, how we engage the community today, and what has to change for us to recognize and exemplify this notion of being anti-racist so that we can not only change systems over time, but that we can help to start to drive a different intergenerational way of thinking about this. This is not a five-year thing. It's not a 10-year thing. The path to fixing it in this country, it took 400 years to make this mess. It's going to take us generations to get out. Our generation today, I think, with the cultural realizations we're undergoing and all of the things we've started talking about and health being so seminal to economic productivity, man, we can move this baseline to new heights um, if we were deliberate enough to do it. That's a really good answer, David. As you're talking about this deep entrenchment of institutional racism and its adverse impact on health outcomes, you've said it, reducing these inequities is going to take considerable time. I mean, we're talking about permanent systemic impact that's going to take decades or more. It's going to require a combination of solutions. And we've got these co-founding variables that we're dealing with, like COVID-19, you know, financial hardships and vulnerable in the communities of color and vulnerable populations. And But when reading about your work with the Medicaid Transformation Project, you identify opportunities to impact individual patient lives immediately through evidence-based care models. 
And transformation work is, as we said, it's difficult. It's going to take time. But I'm encouraged to learn about the phase one work that you guys did in identifying over 150 new evidence-based actions that are being implemented to improve care for, as you said, moms and babies, as well as people with mental illness and those who need care brought closer to them. So even though the promise of evidence-based care models can create immediate improvements in patient outcomes and you know being held to a gold standard in patient care, research shows that it takes hospitals and clinics in the industry really about 17 years to adopt a practice or treatment after the first systemic evidence shows that it really helps patients. How do we reconcile this dichotomy between immediate impact and delayed adoption by clinicians to ensure that we're getting the benefits of care delivery transformation fully realized as quickly as possible. What do you think needs to be done outside of just technology-enabled decision support to eliminate this time lag between the research translation and widespread health intervention? Yeah, I'll say two things on this. And it, this is the the seminal question for our industry, right? Because we can have like all these tools and resources why can't we put this together more quickly than 17 years? It's problematic. So you have to take a really intellectually honest look at, at the things that keep us from that in the industry. To me, it's, it's the simplest two things, sociology and economics. On sociology, we are an industry that loves our silos. We all occupy a part of our fiefdom. Uh, we get really good at what we do. We operate in an economic system that is disjointed and, and, and has misaligned incentives. And as we climb to the top of our individual fiefdoms, we, we get power and we get notoriety and then we get credibility. And it dissuades us from exiting a silo or combining silos in a way that, that is kind of anti-human. Our ability as human beings to let go of power, of influence, of stature, of uniqueness in favor of, of efficiency, in favor of the common good, it, it's a lacking trait for us. And I'll be incredibly provocative here, and I'm sure, depending on your listenership, I'm sure I'll get a couple phone calls about this. We need a lot of new leaders in this industry. A lot of our leaders, and I won't implicate a specific part of the industry or, or any institutions, but a lot of our leaders carry around more self-interest than interest in the common good. Re regrettably, most of the people that like dedicate their lives to caring for patients, I think, are actually very mission-focused. But the people that lead our country's health institutions, and I don't mean this as an overgeneralization, there's wonderful men and women there too, are more interested in their own press clippings in saying the right things at J.P. Morgan or Health Evolution Summit or HIMSS or all the other places, we come together and we use all the right catchwords and, and three, four-letter acronyms, and we talk about poor people and all the wonderful things we're doing for them, and you just lift the curtain, you lift the veneer, and the emperor has, like, the emperor has no clothes, and it is, it is want and self-interest. We need a different kind of leadership in our industry. That's not a government problem. That's an us problem. And we need people focusing on building those leaders for tomorrow. And again, that is not a universal. If you're listening to this and, and you're close to retirement age and you think I'm impugning you, then take a look at yourself. And if you're not carrying around wants and self-interest, then I think you're a rarity. Too many of us are too self-interested. The second is what you guys spend your 50, 60, 70 hours a week focusing on, which is incentives. 
in this country, you know, we, we have a uniquely American healthcare system. American culture is, is about independence. It's about freedom of commerce. Uh, it's about letting markets and competition drive decision-making. And this has been our whole political debate. Should competition drive supply and demand forces or, or should government dictate that? And the truth is, I'm an, I'm an economist, the truth is healthcare doesn't function like a normal economic industry. We don't have information transparency and we don't have information symmetry. We don't have rational decision makers. And yet we try to pay for these things as if it was a normal functioning system. And we don't align incentives. You will get a person to change their behavior faster and more clearly when they are subjected to pain or they're going to anticipate pain. And there is no pain in the world like economic pain. So being able to change the way we pay for care, where we have aggregated those dollars in a way that drives that kind of incentive alignment, combined with a new crop of leaders, look at what we did in 2020 with telemedicine. We saw things happen that would have taken six years of regulation and consultants being hired to create 500-page decks. We have health systems turning on telemedicine from scratch in less than two weeks and being paid at parity. Like we can do it. We need better leaders, and we got to get the incentives right. Well, David, I think you're on to something here, and certainly the alignment of incentives and new and emerging payment models to help us transition the industry to value-based care is so important. But there's this other kind of countervailing trend that's happening with hospital consolidation that it has given me some concern lately. I mean, we've seen unprecedented M&A activity over the last few years, and hospital deal volume is likely to accelerate due to the financial damage inflicted by the coronavirus pandemic. And some industry experts are predicting that the financial effects of the pandemic will drive even more consolidation between hospitals and physician practices as many will seek refuge in the arms of their competitors' balance sheets. And that's going to trigger a new wave of horizontal and vertical consolidation. And we're seeing that so far. I mean, amid COVID-19, you know, M&A activity for hospitals and health systems, it hasn't slowed down. I mean, there was a report from Kaufman Hall recently that there were 19 healthcare transactions in Q3 of 2020. And this number is not only on trend with Q3 reports, but marks a 35% jump from Q2. And in, in your own backyard, I mean, Advocate Aurora Health, one of the largest health systems in Illinois, that was one of the biggest deals in 2020. So this trend towards hospital and provider consolidation, and for me as a value guy, I mean, it's Kind of concerning because we've seen that activity has been shown to increase healthcare costs. So I wanted to get your perspective on this consolidation trend. I mean, will we see that continue to play out in the national healthcare landscape? Or do you anticipate steps being taken by the new administration to aggressively use their antitrust authority to maybe tackle some of this market consolidation and scrutinize future acquisitions and bring that more in line with what we need to transform the healthcare system towards value-based payment? I think you're spot on. We're studying this really closely right now, too, and are going to be publishing on it in the next month or two. I absolutely anticipate a greater number of transactions being announced over the, the coming months and, and years, particularly in markets that may have not fully consolidated yet. And I also fully expect that this administration will, will probably have a tougher 
antitrust stance on hospital M&A than, than maybe we've seen. And this isn't to impugn the Trump administration. It's, I think the truth is the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission have not really fully wrapped their arms around a methodology to determine what does competitiveness mean in healthcare, because it is incredibly complex. If, if we were talking about a, a telephone service provider or a retailer, you know, those are very discrete, monolithic service providing entities. But healthcare is so vast and so complex between institutions and practices and specialists that it's really hard to define those standards. If you take this as a signal, I think it's worth taking as a signal. The FTC put out something two or three weeks ago that really indicates it's going to take an even harder look at the way it evaluates mergers and acquisitions in its own antitrust authority. We've, we've watched states begin to toughen on their antitrust authority, a lot of the eastern and northeastern states. So yes, I think we'll see a greater number of transactions. Yes, I think we'll see a tougher regulatory stance. I think the thing that's going to be difficult here is we've got to find a way to to create a balance between the efficiencies that consolidation can provide in certain cases and the need for market competitiveness. And the market competitiveness piece is going to be difficult until we get better at being able to aggregate information in some way so as to communicate it to a patient through a means that they can understand cost and quality. And those are even really hard things to define in healthcare. I think regulatorily, we're taking some incredible steps in that direction. Cures, 21st century cures authority to ONC and CMS to drive data interoperability. Huge. And the stuff we're seeing out of places like the Karen Alliance, significant. The transparency rule, like that's not going to move the needle by itself for consumers. But the fact that we're letting some of this information out into the, the sunshine gives us the ability to do more with it. So I think in the coming years, our ability to collate that information and, and create ways in which a person with average health literacy can understand it will be important. And if regulators can figure out what that right balance is and, and create a threshold that doesn't let the market overextend into consolidation, all these other forces we've talked about in this discussion will have an opportunity to see their day. If we get either or both of those things wrong, I think we elongate our path to something that's more sustainable. Well, David, this has been a, a brilliant discussion. And as we wrap up today, I'm hoping you can provide some perspective on the pandemic. Early last year, when the pandemic began, you wrote an emboldened open letter to all healthcare professionals and I'm going to quote a piece of that. You said, in the moment of national emergency, those of us that have dedicated our lives and careers to the betterment of our country's health system feel helpless as we watch the world around us burn. That's frustrating. It's also necessary. In truth, unless you have medical training or are capable of producing gloves, masks, or ventilators, there is little value to add in the current moment. And anything you attempt to do that is not in service of immediately caring for people only serves to create noise. Webinars about value-based systems or thought leadership papers about how your solution could or could have addressed the solution are inconsequential unless they can be deployed now, today, immediately. So 10 months have passed since you wrote that letter and we understand a lot more about the virus and the vaccine, we're in a vaccine distribution challenge right now, but are you feeling more optimistic about the future state of our industry and, 
given that there's some light at the end of this tunnel, do you think we'll soon be able to refocus industry efforts toward value-based care reform? I do feel much more optimistic. That piece, I've gone back and forth on whether to, to take that down a, a few times, and I've, I've elected to leave it up because I stand by the message. I, what triggered it was, God, it was like in early April, I received a webinar invite from a consulting business that talked about how to how this this was a great moment to refine a population health management strategy because of COVID. Like we have no idea what COVID was. And and we already see the opportunists out there trying to, to skim a buck off of it. And it, it was it was a maddening thing to see because we literally have these men and women who are, are working 20-hour days. They, they're isolating from their families. And they don't have the most basic thing we need on the front line. Like, get out of business development mode and opportunist mode. You ought to be wearing two hats. There's the civic hat of what can I do in my neighborhood and my community uh, to provide relief from those who have been hurt by this. And if I'm wearing a professional hat uh, that puts me in the system, it doesn't mean I don't go to work and don't have things to do. But I should be thinking about the day after. And what the effects of this period might create is an opportunity to transform the system, not to not to make myself rich or increase the valuation of my business or to raise my next round of capital. And look, I get it. This is a market economy. Those things are important. I'm a small business owner. I get growth. I get profit. I get all of that. But I'm not in this game to get rich. If I make an if I carve out an okay living and provide for my family as a byproduct of it, that's a, that's a wonderful byproduct. But going back to where I started, if health is the, or at least a, seminal American institution or need to drive social interconnectedness and economic prosperity in this country, if you're in this industry, there better be a good party that's thinking about this with a civic lens and a long-term lens about how to improve what's going on in the world around us. Like, I think 2020... Like everybody that's probably listening to this, 2020 was the hardest year of my life but for reasons we haven't even gotten into in, in this discussion. I think it's one of the hardest things our health system will have gone through. But I'm an optimist by nature, and I believe that the difficulties, pain, challenges are crucibles for growth and for refinement. And I think our system has gone through the beginning of a refining moment. Does not mean Things are going to change quickly. That does not mean that everything that, that we know we ought to be doing, we're going to start doing, abounded by a sense of altruism and, and selflessness. But I believe that some of the shifts in culture, the change in the social compact, the science we have developed, the understanding of payment models, and I think an increased sense of civicness that, that can only come in a period like this puts us in a way better position coming into 2021 than we were when we went into 2020. I'll say one more thing on this, and, and that's that I used the $4 trillion number a bit earlier, as you guys well know, and as you listeners know, uh, $4 trillion a year represents about 20% of our uh, economy, and, and we know that continues to go up year after year. This is maybe the last provocative thing. I'll say $4 trillion is enough to do way more than we're doing. We really have only ourselves to blame for why we are where we are. Now, no single one of us can move the system by ourselves, the function of politics, regulation, market forces, and 
social economic things we've talked about. But we have the science, we have the workforce, we have we have a, a unique American spirit and empathy, um, tech, venture. We have everything we need to get way more out of the system than we do. And whether I'm wearing the hat as a taxpayer, as a premium payer, as a copay payer, or as a patient, I have an expectation of a better system, not for not just for me and my family, but for my neighbors and that mother and that little girl who lives five miles away, uh, who did nothing fundamentally different in their life outside of being born with a different color of skin and in a different neighborhood. We can do better. We have to do better because there is no room on the economic leaderboard internationally for a country that spends much more on healthcare than we are. And I think that is going to be the ultimate arbiter of what defines the next generation of American success or failure. What a great way to end. David, how can our listeners find out more about the work that you're doing? Well, as a, as a, as a first-time business owner, I learned the hard way to never pick a business name that's longer than a domain you want to have, but I'm stuck with it. So www.thirdhorizonstrategies, it's a mouthful, T-H-I-R-D, horizonstrategies.com. Uh, that'll link you to our work in Medicaid, our work in addiction, our work with the Healthcare Council of Chicago, and other stuff we do. David Smith, thank you so much for joining us today. And truly, you are a leader in this race to value. And we're so grateful to have you on our podcast this week. Well, thank you for the invitation. Thanks for the work you guys are doing.